What It Takes is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, BakerBots. Founders and leaders of clean energy companies around the world turn to BakerBots for legal advice at every stage of their journey, from incorporation to exit. There's a little founder and entrepreneur in all of us. So those of us who uh, love this stuff get really geeked up about working with those entrepreneurs and the investors who are there you know, to invest in those companies uh, and support them. Mike Tarosian is a corporate and securities partner at BakerBots. Later in the show, he'll describe how the firm works closely with clean energy founders to transform their businesses and reshape the market. BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Jason. Visit BakerBots.com. Hey there, this is Emily. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that Powerhouse is hiring for a couple roles, including a marketing manager to lead our marketing and communications, to help us bring on new clients and maximize our climate impact. The marketing manager will do a bunch of things, including working on and leading this very show. To learn more, click on the link in the show notes or visit powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. Now on with the show. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. With severe weather events, wildfires, heat waves, and droughts happening more and more frequently, companies are waking up to the risk climate change poses to their businesses. Meanwhile, employees and customers are pressuring companies to adopt climate-positive practices to decarbonize their operations, and now regulators are too. As the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, prepares to require public companies to disclose climate risks, corporations are thinking deeply about how to track and manage their emissions, and they need help. Our guest, Watershed co-founder Taylor Francis and his team, build a platform to simplify the process and get companies to decarbonize faster. So we started Watershed in 2019 because we felt what I think a lot of people feel, which is this itch to spend all of our time working on climate. If this is going to be the decade of climate action, it felt too urgent for climate to be a volunteer sideshow for us. In 2019, Taylor and his co-founders Christian Anderson and Avi Itzkovich had just left their jobs at the fintech company Stripe. They wanted to build on Christian's work for Stripe's carbon removal program. They just needed to figure out how. That fall, they turned Christian's bedroom into an office and wrote down a number on a whiteboard, 500 megatons. That represents 1% of all global emissions per year, and that's how much carbon they wanted their new company to cut. We thought about starting a political advocacy group or a carbon removal company or different startup ideas, but all with this mental math of what would need to be true for this effort to add up to 500 megatons per year. They landed on carbon accounting, a space that was getting renewed attention in the corporate world. And so they used their tech experience and climate passion to create Watershed, a carbon accounting company that helps corporations measure, reduce, and report their emissions. Somewhere between the lab and economists thinking about climate action for the whole economy is the boardroom and those executive meetings and watersheds trying to fit decarbonization into the way organizations actually work today. 
Watershed is part data software company and part marketplace. It gives companies the capability to monitor emissions and the tools to actually cut them. So that's our theory of climate impact, is if we give companies both the data to know the trade-offs of their choices and the market access so that they are able to buy low-carbon technologies for every part of their supply chain, we can count to 500 megatons of impact that way. And so Watershed today is the software companies need to get to net zero. We build the tools that every business needs to measure where they're at today, reduce carbon in their own supply chain, fund removal for whatever's left, report to all the stakeholders who care about this now, which is an increasing set of regulators and investors. We have designed a set of tools to help climate leaders make the case for net zero to their CFOs. I sat down with Taylor to learn how Watershed got started, how they got their first customers, and to dig into the nuances of the climate management space. We started with Taylor's childhood in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, where his immersion in nature made him a passionate climate organizer at an early age. Take me back to your early life, you know, you as a kid, I know you grew up in Menlo Park in California, which is near Stanford. How did your upbringing influence your passion for climate? Where did that come from? I'm definitely a California kid through and through. Well, my my parents moved here because my dad wanted to windsurf in the Bay Area. And I think that sort of passion for the outdoors has been the core of our family. Every summer vacation for us was a backpacking trip. We'd pile in the car and drive to Mammoth or Lone Pine or Yosemite and do a seven-day backpacking trip with mom and dad, my younger brother, and our dog. And those are some of my kind of fondest memories from growing up. And I think that just sort of embedded this real outdoors or an on-ramp to environmental passion for a lot of people. And it was certainly true for me to just feel that these natural places were such an important part of my life kind of heightened awareness around what we need to do to protect them. The thing that turned that awareness into real passion for me was going into a movie theater when I was 13 and seeing An Inconvenient Truth. Saw it with my mom. It was at the San Mateo movie theater in that summer. And I just walked out kind of riled up and feeling like, man, this was going to totally change the course of the world in my lifetime and that it felt like it was possible for my generation, other middle schoolers and kids to kind of do something about it. And that was the aha moment for me on wanting to spend a big chunk of my life working on the climate problem. I know you went to Princeton and you studied public and international affairs. And over the summer, you you interned at companies like Facebook and Coursera and Square Given that passion for climate that you found at such a young age, at 13, after seeing Inconvenient Truth, what drew you to those tech companies versus doing something that maybe was more directly tied to climate? Yeah, I took a little bit of a detour. You know, I had seen the Inconvenient Truth movie. I went home that day and tried to guess Al Gore's email address and sent a cold email saying, hey, I'm a 13-year-old in California. I want to help. Someone wrote back from info at algore.com. It was the beginning of the Climate Reality Project his amazing effort to train now tens of thousands of people to be the cavalry, to give the slideshow in their own communities. And I was part of the first training in Nashville, Tennessee, and spent all of high school going to schools and libraries and community centers. I 
you know, figured out that the best way to get an audience was an assembly at a school because everyone had to show up. Um, <laughs> and just felt so much passion around this mission. And then freshman year of college, yeah, went to Princeton, studied public policy with the intention of going into government in some way. And freshman year of college, the cap and trade bill, Waxman-Markey, kind of died in Congress. And it felt like a what the heck are we supposed to do now moment for the climate movement. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. Felt like we were at a bit of a dead end on policy. And so I took a detour away from climate because it felt like while climate was kind of stuck, there was this incredible thing happening back home in California where tech companies were moving really quickly. And yeah, I worked at Coursera working on education access at Square and Facebook and kind of got hooked on the potential for startups to move really quickly, for young people at startups to have a lot of responsibility. And always had this climate thing on the back burner of feeling, okay, it's so fun to work at a tech company, but ah, I want to get back in the fight. So after graduating, uh, I know you joined the payment technology company Stripe, where you met your future co-founders, Avi Itzkovich and Christian Anderson. You all joined Stripe in the early years. The company was just four years old at the time. Is that right? Yep. And it's 12 years old now. Um, what kind of work were you doing at Stripe? And what was it like joining a fast-growing startup? And kind of where was your head at at the time as it relates to climate? I remember coming out of college feeling like the most important criteria on where to work was just the caliber of the people that I'd be working with and learning from. And everyone who interviewed me at Stripe was the smartest person I'd ever met. And I felt that was true in each incremental interview, more than the specific job or payments. Like I just wanted to be at a place with these people. And it was an amazing place to start a career. Stripe is an extraordinary company, in part for the impact on the world. I mean, it's amazing to see what Stripe is doing on climate. We're proud to be partners with them. But even more than that, it's just there's something in the water at that place on rigorous thinkers who have big ambition for what they can pull off. And yeah, spent five years there building Stripe Atlas, which was Stripe's product to help entrepreneurs around the world start companies. Learned a lot, but always had this kind of itch in the back of my head on wanting to get back on the work full time to get to zero carbon. And that brings us to 2019 when... Avi and Christian, and you all started thinking about building a company together. And I know you were members of Stripe's backpacking club. Yes. Was this like an official club or is this just something the three of you formed? It was just the three of us going on <laughs> hiking trips. And yeah, I think we had this thought that if we could survive backpacking 20 miles in the wilderness together, we could start a company together. And we all had this passion for spending the next decade plus of our lives working on climate. And that's what led us to the whiteboard. That's what led us to asking this question of if climate's a math problem and we've got some set of tools, how could we use those tools to have as much impact on the math as we could? I know a lot of people have had the experience of they have an idea for a startup, but then they don't know if they should pursue it or when they should pursue it. So in that session in Christian's guest bedroom in San Francisco, what made you all say, okay, we're doing this? You know, Was it even a question or was it just the obvious thing for the three of you? It was pretty obvious. We just felt so much passion and intensity around working on climate. And again, 
we started on this without a specific idea of what we were going to build. Now, we'd had some inspiration because Christian started Stripe's climate programs and founded the commitment to funding carbon removal, to being the buyer of first resort. And it's been amazing to see what Ryan Orbach and Nan Ransohoff and the whole team at Stripe have turned that into with now a nearly billion-dollar commitment to the carbon removal market. But that had given Christian and us some exposure to this notion that companies were going to need to do work on climate and the old way, the status quo of spreadsheets and PDFs wasn't going to cut it. And so I think there was kind of this top-down and bottom-up genesis of the idea where the bottom-up genesis is we'd felt the pain ourselves. So many startups have started by people building the thing they wish they had. And the top-down genesis was the math of, hey, if we're going to spend our time on climate, helping companies change their choices feels like a pretty darn impactful thing to do. Um, You've told me that Watershed's business can be broken down into two parts, a data software company and a marketplace. How do you measure companies' emissions in a granular and accurate way? And then how do you connect them with the suppliers and carbon removal projects needed to actually reduce emissions? Yeah, we think of climate for companies really as a data problem and a market problem. The core question on the data problem is, are you measuring just to measure or are you measuring to actually do something? Because if you're measuring just to measure, the way people have done this for the last 10 years is fine. Look at your utility bills, use industry average estimates about the carbon impact of a dollar spend in different categories, publish your graph, call it a day. But that doesn't enable you to actually change your operations to reduce emissions. Because in that model, the only way you can emit less is to spend less. And I'm sure companies would love to spend less, but that's probably not going to happen just by kind of wishing it so. And so from the very beginning, we've tried to design watershed to x-ray supply chains. It was actually part of the reason we picked the name. Watersheds are these connected ecosystems and companies operate in connected carbon ecosystems. And we wanted to help them trace the streams of water between their suppliers and their supplier suppliers and them. And ultimately, the way we solve that is that we have built this kind of carbon data engine on the back end that just includes every bit of carbon data we've been able to find in the world about the carbon impact of business activities, companies, from academic papers, from government databases, et cetera. And we get this line item level data from our customers and we match the two. And a lot of the time, we actually go out to suppliers to collect data from the field, from the creameries, from the dairies, from the garment manufacturers on, are they using methane digesters? Are they using clean power? And we build that into the model so that companies can see, here's what the carbon impact would be if you went with a lower carbon alternative. So that's the way we're trying to solve this data problem is open the black box of scope three and really trace carbon back to specific choices that your suppliers and your supplier suppliers are making on the ground. There are some who say that no one's doing scope three emissions tracking accurately because it is so difficult. How confident do you feel in watersheds scope three data? And and is that based on your current process or you know future processes that you intend to integrate? Scope one are the emissions that you directly emit from vehicles or facilities you own. Scope two are the emissions from electricity you purchase for your buildings. And then scope three is everything else. And that's where all 
the messiness lives, and it's where all the potential for impact lives. It's where commuting and remote work lives. It's where the upstream emissions of your suppliers live, and it's where the downstream emissions of your customers live. I think the litmus test there is, are companies making different decisions based on their data? That's what this is all about. Um, And I'm really proud that a lot of the companies that we work with are. And there are companies that are changing their cloud implementations to lower energy, lower carbon intensity um, instance types and regions for AWS and Google. We've got customers changing cheese sourcing, changing cotton sourcing, changing semiconductor sourcing. And yet, we are only at the beginning. And we are spending a lot of time building for this future where anyone at any business knows the carbon impact of the business decision they're making, and they're able to trace it all the way back. That is what needs to be true to enable decarbonization at the pace and scale that the world needs. And we've got work to do to get there. So back to your decision to start the company, you decided to pursue what would become Watershed the last week of September in 2019. You settled on a product idea just a few weeks later in early October, which is already such a condensed, you know, time frame. Then Watershed's big break came only a few months after that on Christmas Eve when the restaurant chain Sweetgreen became your first customer after you'd been up all night preparing the demo yeah. for them. How difficult was it to get that first customer? That's often one of the hardest parts of a, a founder's journey. After we decided we wanted to work on enabling companies to cut their emissions, we immediately hit the road to find customers we could build with. And we wanted to work with companies that were living in the future that were kind of living in a world where carbon needed to be a part of every decision because we were just so convinced that would be true for everyone in the future. And if we could build for them today, we'd be kind of ready when the moment arrived. And I remember the day after we kind of decided to really zoom in on this notion of helping companies cut carbon, taking the BART across the bay to the Verge conference in Oakland and meeting Vince Dignio, who was the head of sustainability at Adobe, meeting kind of different folks who'd been doing this work for a long time, and shared that there was a lot they needed help on. They needed help on better measurement. They wanted access to clean power and carbon removal that was actually impactful. And I remember coming home on a Sunday from Verge with all these business cards. This is in the pre-COVID business card era, just feeling floored that there was a set of people here who kind of needed better tools to do their jobs more effectively. And that was something that I felt like we could solve. We knew how to build software that could make their lives better. And one critical moment for us was signing up Sweetgreen as one of our early customers. Kevin Quant is the head of supply chain there. And he was thinking about this in a way that I think is now standard, but at the time was really ahead of the curve. Just he wanted to make every supply chain decision based on carbon. That's the, the kind of scope three dream, but he was serious about it. And I remember him sending us an email on December 20th saying, hey, can you come and kind of demo the platform for us in Culver City on December 23rd? And getting on a plane, spending time with him and the team at Sweetgreen, and flying back home on Christmas Eve actually bumped into Elizabeth Warren at the LAX airport. This was back in the uh, presidential primary when she was, she and everyone else crisscrossing the country in advance of the election. And Sweetgreen 
along with some of our other customers, has been just such a core partner for us. And I think this is the key thought for entrepreneurs, is that you got to pick your early customers carefully. And we could not have picked better in companies like Sweetgreen and Stripe and Shopify, who all were so forward-thinking around carbon in the supply chain, around carbon removal rather than offsets. And building for them has now enabled us to usher dozens of other companies into this kind of high-impact version of climate action. Given some of those early customers, I know that Watershed didn't raise a seed round. Um, Your first funding round was a 14.5 million Series A that closed in the fall of 2020. Tell me about your experience fundraising and, and what did you learn? Yeah, you know, we were lucky that we funded the business early on from customers and we still fund most of the business from our customers. We approach fundraising with the perspective of who are the people we want around the table, right? We want to build a company that plays a huge role over this generation, this generational project of decarbonization. And that's going to take time. It's going to be hard. And we just wanted to get kind of great people around the table to help us at every step of the way. And we had known Mike Moritz and Sequoia from Stripe. They had been kind of extraordinary company builders for that company. And I'd known John Doerr since we were in the same climate reality project training session back in Nashville. As teenagers. Well, I was a teenager. You were a teenager. Um, <laughs> he he was a part of that same training and hosted a dinner afterwards for the Bay Area presenters. And so we were fellow presenters figuring out how to fiddle with our PowerPoint presentation and was so inspired by the passion he had for this problem. He was funding climate tech back when it was called clean tech back in 2006. And so for us, the fundraise was really about these kind of two folks and two firms who had deep commitment to building companies and to this climate mission that we'd known for a long time. And we've tried to approach kind of our, our two fundraisers since then from this lens of who do we want to work with when the going gets tough. Uh, what have been the hardest parts of building Watershed thus far? You know, early on, I think the hardest part, and I'm sure this is for anyone starting a company, was just the mental roller coaster. I remember... You know, we, we started in those pre-COVID days. I was taking the BART and the Muni around San Francisco and Oakland, going to meet with customers. And I'd meet with one customer in the morning who'd have awesome feedback and be really energized and ready to sign up. And I'd think, oh, this is awesome. We're on to something. And I'd go and meet with another customer an hour later, and they would be indifferent or wasn't a priority, or they felt like they were already doing this. And you just end up in this trough of despair. And in the early days, you have so little data that every single data point matters so much. And I think the managing your own psychology on that roller coaster of how to believe in the high moments and hold on to those kernels of optimism without tricking yourself you know, and learn the right things from the low moments, like that was really, really hard. And I feel like for the first year and a half, every day I would question, are we onto something here or is this a mirage? And fast forward, I think there's now so much has changed in the world where it has become totally clear 
that every company of a certain size is going to have a climate program. There's something big here. And now the hardest part is can we build the right team to take advantage of that? Can we build the right team to kind of leverage this moment for as much climate impact as possible? And so the new roller coaster is around hiring and team building and finding great people who've got that critical mix of passion for their craft, whether that's software engineering or sales or marketing or product management, and passion for the mission to kind of do what it takes on this decade plus journey that we're going to be on. Do you still struggle with that, the roller coaster, or has it evened out to a I, a flat road? No, it's definitely not a flat road. I, I sometimes think that building a company, and I'm we're still very early in this, so I think we've got a lot left to learn. But I feel like building a company is like building this sort of Jenga tower of existential problems. And so early on, those layers of the Jenga tower are around, is there going to be a market for this? That's really the only thing that matters early. Are there customers who need what we're building? And that was the roller coaster of riding the Muni from customer meeting to customer meeting, either feeling like we were onto something or this was going to be a huge failure. And now, you know, that part of the Jenga tower feels solid. There's a huge need here from companies decarbonizing. And then there's these, you know, new layers of the Jenga tower, which are around team building and around new markets and new products. And so, yeah, I think that the roller coaster never stops. It just operates at different levels of the Jenga tower. Coming up, Watershed looks to prove that corporate climate accounting is big business, not just a passing fad. First, a word from our exclusive sponsor. What It Takes is brought to you by BakerBots, the global law firm trusted by clean energy and climate tech leaders. At the top of the show, you heard from Mike Tarosian, a partner at BakerBots. He helps clean energy startups at every stage of growth. Forming those companies, help them get funded, and whatever their next step is, whether it's a liquidity event through a sale or an IPO, uh, we'll take them through that process. And all along the way, building a successful company. To help companies scale quickly and effectively, BakerBot's lawyers need to think and act like entrepreneurs. It's a great ride. Every day uh, is full of the opportunities and challenges that our entrepreneurs have. And that means riding all the highs and lows alongside startups, providing sound legal services that shape ideas into market-moving businesses. And so I think what, what's unique about us is that we have an entrepreneur's mindset, but we have the broad and deep practice um, to be there both when the company is formed and taking them all the way through acceleration of the business and all the funding that goes with that. And so you're riding along with them on that adventure, really enjoying the ride. BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Mike. Visit BakerBots.com. On the, the roller coaster of fundraising, so in February of this year, Watershed raised a $70 million Series B at a billion-dollar valuation. How do you feel about the billion-dollar valuation? You know, the reality is that any startup at our stage, valuation is kind of about expected value, and the company is either going to be worth $0 or it's going to be worth a lot. And so I encourage the team and encourage the people who work at Watershed, not to get over-indexed on that number. What that says is that if we do something 
special here. We've got an opportunity to build a business with a lot of impact. And the default state for all startups is failure. And so that's why we've got to kind of earn it every day by hiring the right people, building the right product, and helping our customers be successful. There is, as you've mentioned, and I agree, so much excitement around this space in a way that it didn't exist even a few years ago. Some would call that excitement hype, especially around the carbon management. What would you say to somebody who says that companies like Watershed, you know, not necessarily Watershed specifically, but, you know, you, your peers, what would you say to somebody who says they're overvalued? I think that decarbonization is going to be the big economic mega force of the next generation. And one way to think about that is that 100% of GDP is going to be affected by decarbonization over the next 30 years. Kind of has to be, or we're in big trouble. And compare that to the economic megaforce of the last 30 years, the kind of shift of commerce to the internet, where we're still 30 years into the internet and under 20% of GDP has been affected by the internet. That makes me think that, well, A, this is the most important societal project for us to kind of maintain a world that our kids are happy to live in. But B, this is going to be an enormous business for dozens of different companies, hundreds, thousands of different companies that hold different parts of the decarbonization value chain. And I think when you see the excitement from companies who are trying to change their business around climate, they're seeing that. And that is a thing that is going to be a really compelling force, and it has to be if we're going to have a shot at this. Such an important piece of achieving that vision is the work that you're doing with your clients to help them reduce their own emissions by helping them choose low-carbon suppliers, buying clean energy, accessing permanent durable carbon removal projects, as you've described them. When you describe it that way, what does that mean? Like, What do those permanent and durable carbon removal projects look like? What are your customers actually buying? I think this is one thing that's one of the things that's been so exciting about the last couple of years, which is when we started on this, when Stripe and Shopify launched their carbon removal commitments back in 2019, this was a bit of a, a bold idea that companies should, instead of spending money on traditional offsets, spend money on insanely expensive technologies that remove carbon from the atmosphere and sequester it in a permanent way so that those technologies could come down the cost curve. I think it's really exciting that that idea is now migrated to the like the, the outer edge of the mainstream, but we need it to come right to the center of the mainstream if we're going to have a shot. And the core concept there is, you know, look at the IPCC report, carbon removal is an important part, not the only part, but we need 5 to 10 gigatons of carbon removal by the middle of the century. And we've got some approaches that work. Nature-based solutions are kind of part of a critical part of restoring Earth's natural balance. But if you just do the math, we need other ways to remove carbon at scale, and we don't have them today. We're supply constrained. And so, you know, companies funding carbon removal, it's partially about getting to true net zero for their own operations. I think that a company... You know, in order to be truly net zero, it needs to reduce as much as possible and then remove what's left and avoided emissions offsets don't get you to true zero. But at this point, it's less about a company kind of making its own carbon accounting math balance and much more about pulling the future into the present 
And you know, companies are kind of the only buyer in this market right now. And we need companies to kickstart this market so that policy has the time to catch up. Tell me about when you were coming up with the idea for Watershed, what was the original business model? Has it changed? Is it the same? What is it today? How do you all make money? Yeah. And who pays you? You know, Watershed is two things. It's data, software, and it's a marketplace. And that has been true since day one. Honestly, the first slide of our sales deck looks a little prettier now, but it's the same general architecture of helping companies go through the whole journey of measuring, reducing, reporting, and removing their carbon. That means we charge companies a kind of annual software fee for using the data software. And when we help to facilitate carbon removal or clean power projects, you know, we take a share of that as well. Ultimately, our incentives are to make our customers successful in cutting their carbon emissions. And that is the kind of beauty of the business model is that we are super aligned with them on their climate programs getting off the ground in a way that drives business results and drives real carbon impact. Some of your competitors have said that it's a conflict of interest to do both the accounting and the selling of of offsets or removal. Do you agree with that? If so, why, why not? Our core business at the end of the day is helping company climate programs succeed. And we have leaned into helping companies find clean energy and carbon removal projects because it's a big part of them having a successful program. And we don't want to just stop at the accounting and measuring the carbon graph. We want people to do something about it. And if we can make it easier for them to point dollars to the high-impact projects, we think that's really awesome. They don't have to. And you know, some companies choose to source their own projects or work with other partners. That's fine and great. But for companies that do want to be able to kind of do everything all in one place, it's really exciting to us to be able to walk them along the entire journey from knowing their number today to putting together a coherent portfolio of carbon reductions within their own supply chain and kind of funding catalytic removal outside of it. And how do you help ensure the validity of those projects that you point clients towards? It's such a good question. I think we are in a moment in the carbon market right now where, unfortunately, not every ton of carbon credit is created equal. Hopefully that will change. When this becomes a functioning market, you should have confidence in the integrity of every ton of CO2 avoided or removed that you buy, but it's not true today. And there's been a whole slew of research that shows a lot of people are paying for carbon reductions that would have happened without them. We spend a lot of time with scientists, with independent advisors, with investors, with the people who are you know, on the ground in this space and independent in this space to figure out what are the projects that are really effective and kind of do what they say they do? The other thing I'd say is that on carbon removal in particular, we encourage companies to think about funding a portfolio of bets, right? The reality about these early stage carbon removal projects is not all of them are going to work. And that is kind of the point because we need more shots on goal. And in the same way that venture investors fund a portfolio of startups, in the same way that you buy an exchange-traded fund that's a portfolio of companies, I think you're going to see more and more companies fund these portfolio of carbon removal bets, and we're going to judge success in the aggregate. We're going to look back however many years from now and say, are there more carbon removal companies as a result of there being more demand in the space? And that's how we'll know if, if those investments succeeded. Looking back on what you've built so far and your leadership, what lesson has taken the longest to learn? 
I think it's very hard to judge how quickly the world is moving. And it has been astonishing to see how fast what used to be the ceiling on climate action is becoming the floor. How quickly this has gone from being a sideshow of corporate social responsibility programs and PR teams to a imperative for CFOs. I think the thing we're constantly trying to do is just move faster, hire faster, build faster. That's true for every startup, right? Every startup is trying to use the fact that they are nimble as their edge against the inertia and Goliaths of the existing market. And it's doubly true here because, as we all know, we have so little time left on solving this problem, right? Every month is 1% of this decade, and every day is 2.7 basis points of this decade. We're already more than 12% of the way through the critical decade for climate action. And so I think we've had to constantly relearn the lesson about the imperative of racing to scale to keep up with and be ahead of how quickly the space is changing. While you're doing that, I'm curious about your own experience, given who you are, being a white man, leading a company in an industry that is overly represented by white men. What has that experience been like for you? How do you think about that? Well, obviously, you know, I need to recognize my own privilege of how I was born into the world and what that's enabled. And honestly, I get kind of frustrated. I think as a tech industry, we've been talking about diversity for decades, not doing much. The climate space, it's doubly important, right? You've got the imperative of building diverse teams because it makes teams more effective because it's the right thing to do. And you've got this extra motivation that climate so deeply intersects issues of racial justice and gender equality and this kind of deep injustice of the people causing the problem look very different than the people who are going to pay the biggest price. And so, anyway, I, th- I think we as a space and as an industry just got to move a lot faster to get those voices around the table so that we, we solve this problem the right way. Mm, agreed. We've seen, as you said, a greater push for corporate emission tracking and target setting thanks to pressure from customers and industry and regulators and the recent Securities and Exchange Commission's proposal to mandate climate risk disclosure is a big step. What will the future of carbon emissions tracking and reduction look like a decade from now? And what role will Watershed be playing? I think that we are fast approaching the world where carbon is a critical result for companies in the same way that revenue and cash flow are. And that is going to have far-reaching implications across every part of the corporate world. Um, It's going to mean that every decision gets made with the lens of carbon. And the question is just when. You know, the faster we get to that world, the better shot we have. The later we get to that world, the steeper and more draconian its impact will be. Um, and you know, we're trying to build Watershed to be the software that enables that, um, that enables kind of companies to make those choices. 
I have another thought here on this, kind of two other thoughts on the SEC news, which was a kind of a lightning bolt for this space. Um, one thought is it's really exciting to see regulations go beyond just requiring reporting on historical results and introducing this notion of accountability for achieving the targets that you've set. That's a part of the SEC regulations. It's a part of many of the regulations in Europe. That's a big deal. That is another example of yesterday's ceiling becoming tomorrow's floor. People are going to hold you accountable for if you achieve net zero by 2030. And I think that's going to be baked into the financial markets in a really compelling way. I think people have underappreciated how impactful that's going to be. Second thought is this. You know, in the U.S., President Biden set out this goal of cutting carbon in half by 2030. And he had, you know, a big tool to get there, which was the Build Back Better legislation, this kind of injection of capital into low-carbon technologies. And right now, that legislation is completely dead in Congress. And it seems like that should be on the front page of the New York Times every single day. You know, we do not have a path to cut carbon as fast as we intend to, as long, you know, that was the plan and that plan is dead. And that is a thing we should wake up in the morning and go to sleep every night thinking about. And so I think that adds extra importance and raises the stakes of this general effort to mobilize companies for climate action, which the SEC regulations are a part of, the European regulations are a part of. It kind of has to work. You know, this tool really matters, especially when we've taken some of these other tools out of our toolbox. I wish that weren't so. You know, we should have gotten a head start on this with the cap and trade bill back in 2006, but we're here. And enlisting companies to lead on decarbonization is one of the few tools we have left. And so I think it's really important that we all approach this space not as a ESG checkboxing new enterprise need that you just do the minimum thing in order to get in the ETF. Like This is a tool that needs to work if we're going to avoid the climate Armageddon we're on track for. Very much agreed. Last question before we move into my favorite part. And the question is, how many people on your team today, and for those on your team who hear this, what do you want them to know? And for those who are considering joining your team, what do you want them to know? You know Watershed was seven people at the beginning of last year and you know, on our way to being hundreds of people this year. Um, and so we are staffing up in a big way to kind of build the infrastructure that companies need to decarbonize. And I think the key thing to know about the type of team we're trying to build is that you know, we're building a team at the intersection of passion for this mission and passion for your craft. And both of those things are really important because this road is going to be hard enough that, yeah, it's important to give a damn about getting the world to zero. But the work you do day to day is writing code, it's talking to customers, it's marketing, it's product management, it's HR and recruiting, like, you know, you spend the hours of the day doing that work. And it's kind of on Friday night when you go home with that exhausted feeling that you remind yourself that it's a part of the climate mission. But it's really important that people feel the 
passion and energy and joy out of doing their day-to-day work. And, you know, my hope is that Watershed and all the companies in this space, I think the question we should all be asking ourselves is what's the most effective way to convert the skill set that I've got into carbon reduced? And for Peter Reinhardt, a charm that's building new ways to turn biomass into carbon removed. For us, it's trying to build software and marketplaces that help companies decarbonize. And so that's the question we should all be asking is kind of what, what are the tools that I have? What's the craft that I'm passionate about that I can get energy out of doing day to day? And what's the most efficient way to turn that craft into CO2, not in the atmosphere? This is my favorite part. It's our high voltage round. These are quick questions with five second answers, okay. so like a couple words. The first question is, what inspires you? People who've been doing climate work long before it was cool. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would be a magazine editor. Going back to your middle school days. That's right. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Mom and dad. Tell me about a specific time in a few words that you failed. Well, you know, I talked about spending a lot of time in high school, kind of going around giving talks about climate. I don't know that that had any impact. I sometimes question whether that was a bunch of hot air. Um, And it was part of our motivation in Watershed was wanting to have something where you could really track and measure what's the direct line between what you're doing and carbon not in the atmosphere. I bet it did have an impact, but I understand the the question. What's the best investment you've ever made? Um, I had a seventh grade English teacher, Dr. Anderson, got me really kind of motivated around writing. And she was the advisor on the middle school magazine that we started. And I think it's hard to overstate how impactful being able to write clearly is. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? We definitely approached Watershed in the early days with a lot of deliberation on hiring and scaling and wanted to be really careful. And I think we're now in a moment with the urgency to scale climate solutions that we got to be willing to go really fast even if it's a little messy along the way. When are you your best self? After a morning bike ride. Hmm. What is your worst trait? Sometimes overthink things. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? We'd solve climate change. Easy answer. (laughs) If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Someone who's going to have the first day of starting a company tomorrow and needs to be reminded that they should just do it. Love it. What's your best quality? I think I'm lucky to have a family that I love spending time with, and I feel super grateful for that every day. If you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? You know, as a very young kid, I remember thinking raccoons were super cool. And now that (laughs) seems like entirely the wrong answer, but I definitely remember having a raccoon phase as a kid. If it's your answer, it's the right answer. Do you remember what you liked about them? They look kind of cool with the little goggles, you know? I agree. Yeah. Kind of crafty. (laughs) I agree. I mean, pretty smart, dexterous, you know, there's there's a lot of good qualities. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? They forget that the only thing that matters is their customers. If you really knew me, you would know? The joy of a great backpacking meal. (laughs) I can relate. Success is? Being fired up to do your work every day. Mm. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have? Spent more time with my grandmother. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be? 
chipping away at this climate problem as best I can. Hmm. I'm most proud of? Working with some amazing people at Watershed every day. I pinch myself every day walking into the office. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? Picking the right people to work with every day. Hmm. Agreed. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us and for what you're building. And I very much sincerely hope that you are successful because I think the world needs what you and your peers are all doing. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Emily. This has been fun. Taylor Francis is the co-founder and CEO of Watershed. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, BakerBots. To scale your clean energy business faster, you can reach out to their global team of lawyers. Visit BakerBots.com. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Media. Powerhouse is not an incubator or an accelerator. We're an innovation firm that works with globally leading corporations to help them find climate tech startups that have the technology they're looking for. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more about Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Follow us on Twitter at joinpowerhouse and follow me at Emily Kirsch. If you enjoyed this show, there's a few ways you can help us out. You can give the show a rating or review at Apple or Spotify, or send this episode to a friend or colleague who you think would like it. We're also excited to announce the winner of last month's raffle of a limited edition What It Takes crew neck. Congratulations to Candler Grimes. We selected their review at random from all the reviews we've recently received on Apple and Spotify. They wrote... If you're looking to get into climate tech and have an interest in startups, this is the best podcast you'll find. Whether founding or joining a startup, this show tells you the stories you need to hear. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey, Dalvin Abawaji, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs> <laughs>